This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Glad to have you on board with us once again. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And boy, we're excited today because we are going to talk about paper money. Everybody's favorite thing to spend, but we're not talking about spending money necessarily. We talked to Dennis Hengeveld, a world paper money expert, and um, had lots of fun, learned quite a bit, uh, and I hope you find that enjoyable just in a little bit. That's great to have a guy like Dennis, and he gave us a lot of information that we're sharing here with you. And uh, we'll come up to that point right there. But uh, let me remind you once again, this podcast is presented by Amos Advantage, and uh, we thank Amos Advantage for their continued support. And it's kind of tough for me today because I woke up to the news, and it's not the greatest news in the world, but I mean, there's certainly worse, and people are going through so much, but I'm kind of depressed, kind of tropically depressed. When I look that uh, the latest storm out in the Atlantic has a name that I'd hoped I'd never see because now we have Hurricane Larry. Maybe Lifeguard Larry will be out on the beach <laughs> and uh <laughs> one one can hope i mean I, my my thoughts go out to those folks that just went through hurricane ida and it uh when the devastated in new orleans they're still trying to get power back at the time we're recording this some of our friends at ms rao down in the french quarters hope everything's going well for them and then of course the storm continued up and caused havoc in the northeast and our thoughts and prayers with them as well but you know, you don't really want to be associated with a hurricane. Hurricanes wreak all kinds of havoc. But back in the day, I mean, the hurricanes actually helped our hobby by causing shipwrecks and treasure hunts and that type of thing. So I guess there's a a, a silver or gold lining on a situation like that. But now I know that I'm going to face a lot of ridicule when I go out and go, oh, Hurricane Larry, oh, Larry this. and Larry. I know because I've done the same thing to people that had other names like that. But, you know, it's just... When you get out and about and you talk to people about different things, just like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had some friends over that uh, join us for our outings in trivia, and they're from Scotland, and we got to talking about coins and different lifestyles and differences between here and there and how the architecture is so much older and that type of thing. And he said to me, he said, one of the things that, you know, he has a lot of friends who are metal detectorists. And I went, huh, you know, I don't know many in this country. But he goes, oh, no, we've got a lot of, because with the age of the country, there's a, a quest 
to find older, more valuable antiquities, so to speak. And well, I guess it was almost fortuitous that we had this conversation. Well, you know, Scotland's a little bit a little bit away from the Isle of Man, but I did just report about the story of a Viking era horde that was discovered in uh, the Isle of Man, tiny island. I actually uh, pre-pandemic was looking at trying to travel to the Isle of Man in 2020 uh, on one of my trips to the UK, just because I thought that would be so cool to go there and go to Douglas and, and all that. And I, you know, I've written about Isle of Man coins for years. Uh, it would be fun to go there, but anyway, and, and it's like a, you know, a half an hour flight from London or something and 30 quid or whatever, like 45 bucks to fly there one way or something. But anyway, uh, the Isle of Man is this tiny outlet, uh, Island in the sea off the coast of Great Britain and there was a metal detectorist, Kath Giles, or Giles, who back in April found 87 silver coins and 13 pieces of uh, cut silver arm rings. These, this is known as hack silver and uh, associated artifacts. Uh, this was actually her fourth significant discovery since taking up metal detecting only three years ago. As we were talking before the show, you know, how exciting would it be to be able to metal detect in an in, in area that has 2,000 years of history potentially to be discovered? I mean, you know, here in the U.S., you've got 400 years at most. Really, much of the country, you've only got 200 years. So, uh, or less. Um, I mean, think about Arizona and California. It's 100, 150 years of of really, you know, significant population. And the more people you have, the more chance you're going to have some some good finds. But this was a neat uh, story. They had a um, a silver coin of a king known as Silkbeard, and uh, I thought this was like too cute because the coin shows the guy waving. And I thought, that looks, is that photoshopped? Is this for real? Are they pulling our leg? And I went and searched some academic sources and, and different auction houses that have sold some of this. This is called the Hiberno Norse coinage. And um, no, th- this is for real. This is an actual legitimate coin that was issued back around literally like a thousand years ago. So, um, fun story. The really, I pressed the officials at um, Manx National Heritage to get more information than what they released publicly, and they really don't have much more information uh, right now because they're they're still working through the hoard, and um, at some point it'll be uh, have a valuation assessment at the British Museum, and and there'll be the you know the wrangling over. Um, you know, can they raise the funds to get it and all that? And uh, that's the interesting thing about the treasure laws in the United Kingdom. The finder and the landowner, uh, you know, generally always split the proceeds, you know, here in the U.S. or wherever, if it's done the right way and, you know, people are fair and honest and and, and all that. In the U.K., uh, the government allows for that to happen, but it gives the 
public institutions' first right of refusal, basically, to buy the pieces and add them to their collection. And so it's a balance between respecting private property, but encouraging archaeological discoveries uh, to be uh, shared through museum settings. And, you know, that's a very thorny area with, uh, with collectors and with archaeologists. But uh, I think that's a, such a, a great model because, again, it strikes that balance. And uh, it doesn't say, like some countries, that, you know, if you find something, it's automatically the government's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And that's why people don't own up to stuff and it's, you know, it enters the black market or whatever that discourages honest commerce and does affect the archaeological record. And, uh, you know, at least in the UK uh, treasure laws uh, that does respect the right of uh, the private property owner while, you know, having a carrot and stick, uh, an outlet for, um, proper study. So anyway, that was that was the the fun story I got to write uh, in the latest issue of Coin World. And it's always so great to me because it's exciting to find out new things, and new things can sometimes be old things. And uh, you know, you just never know the discoveries we're going to also in the upcoming in the edition of Coin World that's out now. We're going to have information about a national bank note out of Texas that was previously unknown until it uh, was turned in for a future auction. So it's always great when new things, which are not new, are discovered, and it gives you hope that maybe someday you'll stumble onto something a little bit of value. I wouldn't mind having a silk beard myself, but uh, you know, it just doesn't seem to grow in like it should. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I bet, you know, the thing of it is when I saw the headline and it had Viking in it and I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, Minnesota starts their season and uh, I wonder how they're going to do this year. But, uh, you know, football's on my mind a little bit because, of course, they always flip a coin. So to start things off. So that's where we can make the relevance to that. But uh, we're absolutely grasping at straws from this point. So I think we need to go back to uh, what we know. And that is what has actually happened in the history of numismatics. So let's get back on track with today's show and uh, find out what is important around this time in the month of September in the world of numismatics. Well, it is most appropriate that you mentioned hurricanes and shipwrecks because, and and this is, you know, we didn't plan this. I, I look at this data, you don't see this, but it dovetails so smoothly. Uh, September 6th is the date uh, that we're looking at, and it was September 6th in 1622, Quick math, carry the one, 399 years ago. And that's when the Nuestra Señora de Tocha treasure ship hit a reef and sank near the Florida Keys. And we all know, I mean, anybody who's paid attention to the hobby at a basic level has probably heard of the Atocha and Mel Fisher and the recovery of that famed wreck and, and the I mean, just the enormous galleon and the gold and the jewels. And, uh, you know, I can recall as a lad, a wee lad in the 1980s, when this really was being discovered, I was reading some, you know, something like Boy's Life and some of these other magazines 
and hearing the story of this treasure and seeing the photos of the uh, emerald encrusted cross and, you know, all these, the golden finger bars and different things and just being mesmerized and having that, um, that allure, that romance, that is one of those things that really hooked me into numismatics writ large because, you know, that's a, a function of it is, is this the romance of, of the shipwrecks and, and the ideas of, uh, of finding treasure and uh, not long after that, I read a book that had a story about the Bedford, Virginia coin uh, treasure that's allegedly, I, I can't think of the um, uh, the name, and then, you know, the Lost Dutchman. So when the ANA show was out in Phoenix, I went and visited the burial site of the man who is believed to have been the Lost Dutchman. Uh, the guy out in Arizona who allegedly uh, hid gold in the Superstition Mountains. So it, it's amazing how one thing can lead to another uh, when you're talking about interest in the hobby and then and going from there. You know, we've run the gamut of, of topics just all off of that um, that hurricane reference. So that's that was to yeah. me most important to to highlight because you know those those pieces still show up in auctions today. They're very popular, understandably so. Gosh, I wish I could uh, afford one. But, um, you know, it's it's um, one of those dream issues like an Una and the Lion. That's, that's a, something to strive for. Most people, I think, listening probably won't ever own one or afford one. But you know what? We can we can sure spend our time dreaming about it. Window shopping is free, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, if memory serves, I think the uh, Central America was also in uh, was in the hurricane in September, if memory serves correctly, in 1857 on that one. But just the idea that we're talking about something that happened almost 400 years ago, very close to 400 years ago, and it's still very relevant today. And to see the excitement that's built up around shipwreck coins in general, you're talking about a uh, you know, an event that occurred 400 years ago. Yet there was a discovery of the hoard that even predates that by several hundred years. And it's just so neat that uh, you know the modern issues they have their panache. I get that, but just the the older the coin, it seems like the 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 greater the lore. Yeah, I, Would you I mean. Agree? You know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It depends on who you're asking. Uh, you know, bigger coins are better, generally. Gold coins better than silver. But, uh, you know, you can't divorce the um, romance of, you know, an ancient coin, a 2,000-year-old coin being discovered. It's like, do I want to see a no-hitter or a walk-off Grand Slam? Well, they're both really cool, and they're both really uncommon, but they both bring a different element to it. So I wouldn't lump them in just because there's, uh, you know, different facets to it, but, but boy, um, is it fun? And I, we know, you know, readers like to hear about hordes and, and discoveries and finds. And I, I know that's the, the innate human nature desire to find something of value for, for little to nothing to, you know, to strike it rich to, you know, we, our mind wanders to those dreams and, um, you know, 
some of these stories do really prove that with knowledge, and, and in some cases, you don't even have to have knowledge, with a little bit of luck, you know, you can you can find some riches out there. You can find a, a you know, a fourth known example of whatever, or the first known, as you said, of the banknote. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing how stuff turns up and always be attuned to opportunities to make a discovery. Yes, indeed. And that education that you mentioned as well, luck does certainly play a role in it. But uh, also you set the stage if you are informed and if you are educated. And it's just important to know what you're looking at. Otherwise, you may not. It's just like an error coin in change. You uh, may, If you don't know what you're looking for, you may pass up an opportunity to have something. So it's just always good to know what's going on or just if it, if it raises your curiosity, then that's where you need to be. And so, you know, we stay curious because we know that it's out there. We don't know specifically what's out there, but there are things out there that still to this day, with all the technology and everything that we have at our beck and call, there are still elements that, huh, I never knew that. I mean, Google doesn't have all the answers, that's for sure. So thank you for sharing that with us, a very significant event. But uh, let's go now into the coin world history. Uh, we didn't go back to the uh, 399 years ago, so we're only ha- going back into the past six decades. But I think we're going to kind of stay more recent. We went into the early 2000s recently, but I think maybe something in the 2010s would be helpful today. Yeah, so uh, Dennis talked about a discovery he made in 2015, really the the thing that sent him on his journey into paper money at a large level. And so I went to the September 14, 2015 issue, and lo and behold, right there on the front page is a story about coins and artifacts being discovered from the 1715 Spanish plate fleet. Now, that's, uh, again, off the coast of Florida, like so many uh, shipwrecks here in the U.S., of, of treasure, I should say. There's plenty of shipwrecks out there, but treasure wrecks. Gosh, there's the Edmund Fitzgerald, and we don't think of that as you know particularly you know, when it comes to numismatics, although the Andrea Doria, a more modern uh, wreck, there are, there's some paper money that was recovered from that and, um, and been marketed. And so, you know, there, there are some opportunities out there for, you know, non-treasure shipwrecks, but this was, um, uh, 350 coins reported discovered in 2015 on the 300th anniversary of, of the 11 shipwreck, which was of course caused by a hurricane, uh, that hit off the coast of Florida. It was in the news all over. And, uh, there was, uh, you know, there were nine gold coins known as Royals. These are, uh, super rare presentation pieces or, um, you know, made with special dyes, made with collars, unlike a lot of the, um, gold and, and silver coins of the era that were, um, struck a little more roughly or, you know, with less precision, I should say. So shipwrecks, like I say, there, when we can find a hoard or a shipwreck story, we, we work hard to bring that and, and really bring an element that uh, other media outlets aren't going to have. Sometimes it's impossible. You have folks that don't cooperate or there's, you know, they, they told the whole story. So it's, you know, it's very hard sometimes to add a an element to it that um, is brand new or, or different. But um, 
you know, we love writing them and we know readers love reading them. So that was what uh, jumped out from the issue this week, six years ago. Well, that's interesting, too, because being down here in Florida, sometimes we pick up on some news items, and we were sitting at a local restaurant. I just kind of scanning through, and out of Indian River County, which is over along the uh, East Coast, along the Atlantic Coast, there was a story that uh, on August 1st, a 17-year-old senior at uh, Vero Beach High School, that's August 1st was a Sunday, so he was out, and he'd been a uh, treasure hunter since he was eight years old, uh, a detectorist as well. And he was out on the water, and he happened to jump in without his metal detector because he was going to look around. And he found a 1715 Fleet gold coin that they estimate to be about $10,000. And, uh, well, the uh, the coin is actually the first one discovered of the season. Didn't even know they had a treasure hunting season. It runs from June until August. But according to the... Uh, what Captain John Brandon from the 1715 Fleet Queen's Jewels LLC, who owns the salvage rights to the shipwrecks, uh, that was the first discovery that was made. Now, uh, it's going through the process of uh, getting verification and all that, but it was in one of the local newspapers that a discovery of a coin didn't say what kind of denomination or what kind of shape it was in or anything like that. Just simply a 1715 Fleet coin was discovered. So here again... This stuff is out there. Got to be finding it. And uh, this this young man from uh, Indian River County over there was able to do that. But also, while we were spending some time in the issue for 2015, we wanted to go into the letters. But there seemed to be one theme and one theme only surrounding the letters. Because this is at the time. <laughs> I, yeah, I actually has... looked at them. <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. This was at the time when there was the, uh, the releasing of the Coins and Chronicles sets of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, for one. And the first letter says, Frozen out by the mint. Went online at 12 noon sharp, August 11th, to try to order my two Eisenhower Coin and Chronicles sets, but immediately the website was frozen. I tried repeatedly, but to no avail. I also had my sister and several friends try with the same results. We were not even able to click online. I called the mint later that night to complain and was told I was the first person to complain. I don't think so. The multi-million dollar website they bragged about once again had failed. Meanwhile, I checked eBay an hour later after the sets went on sale and they were selling for $300 to $600 each. Apparently, it's not what you know, but who you know. Once again, coin dealers get all the sets while the regular people get nothing. And then... Further on to that one, we had one called Totally Unfair Advantage, which says, I must take issue with the editorial opinion expressed in Coin World's July 20th issue concerning the mint release of the Harry S. Truman 2015 Coins and Chronicles set. Particularly concerning the Truman set, I found the editorial to be way too soft on the mint's culpability. In particular, the small Truman set production quantity of 17,000 sets with attendant household limits of fives is unconscionable. For such a small quantity, there should have been a household limit of one. The limit of five only served to provide dealers and other operatives a gross and total unfair advantage. I, for one, never even got to click on the Truman offer. A very disappointing escapade. I have now seen dealer ads noting that they have quantities and pricing at the set of $299. 
That's my point. The first letter coming from Robert Savage. This letter from Paul Waters out of Lakewood, Colorado. There were a couple of other ones, but the subject was the same. Deja vu all over again. So that's what was in the letters in 2015. Yeah, the the more things change, the more they stay the same. So the U.S. Mint is the gift that keeps on giving, at least when it comes to or taking in this point, in this when it comes to collectors. But uh, anyway, you know, it's um, it's not. I don't mean to make light of the situation. I don't mean to trivialize the frustrations with the U.S. Mint, but I do mean to trivialize, uh, or at least ask you a trivia question and find out, have you trivialized the answer for me, if that makes any sense at all? Well, it's like like most things, it may make sense to somebody. So go ahead. Yeah. Last week, uh, you know, w- we talked about the ANA a little bit. And so I wanted to know of something that the ANA has in their museum that, you know, really stands out, that makes it important. And um, I wanted to know what that was. And and I I say it the way I say it, because I don't want to give it away and I don't want to give too many hints. But, you know, if, if you know, you know, and if you don't, you don't. So do you have any idea about what I'm asking uh, or what I was asking last week? What thing or things in the ANA museum is sort of a centerpiece to the, to the holdings. I'm not real sure um, because I really didn't want to cheat and look it up or, or anything like that. But uh, I, I just wondered if it has anything to do with the 1913 nickel. If, if I'm totally off base, I get that. I'm going to go ahead and take my lumps, but it is one of those there. Is one of those there. Yeah. I'm just totally guessing. I have no idea. So go ahead and tell me. The collection is, or the thing is, the Harry W. Bass collection featuring American gold coins, experimental pattern coins, and paper money. Ah, okay. I thought it was one coin, but I just got, and when you said was, I was concerned that maybe it wasn't there anymore. So, no, I mean, it's very much there. Yeah. So, uh, that's the answer I was looking for. Maybe that was unfair. Maybe I didn't ask the question right. So since I've been going off questions of my own making, I'm going to go back to the Coin World Trivia game for this week's question. We're talking about paper money, so I found a paper money question. And this is novice level, although you will be forgiven if you don't know the answer. Um, maybe. The question is, the letter H and numeral 8 refer to which Federal Reserve Bank? So, you know, there are 13 Federal Reserve Banks, and American paper money has letters and numerals tied to those issues. Which Federal Bank, Federal Reserve Bank, does H and 8 which, which do they represent? I mean, it's it's one of 13, so you have a 6.7-something percent chance of getting it right, right? I mean, that's yeah, a 7% I, I like chance. Yeah, I like my odds on that one. 7.7% yeah, like so, like chance of getting it right if you just did a blind guess. Uh, maybe okay. between now and the next week, you're going to look at every piece of U.S. paper money that comes through your wallet, which... 
is isn't saying much. Probably won't be that many. <laughs> no, there won't be. I'm Definitely kidding. not. Unless I make unless I make change for a five or something. But uh, you know, no, there's really. I mean, you you timed it such that it's not a payday is not going to happen. So I, I yeah, I'm just going to have to. Uh, hey, can I look at that? Look at that bill. Hey, can I look at that? You know, and it's yeah. like nobody would let me look at their money. They know better now. I'm looking for, yeah. you know, ones that have serial numbers that are slightly different. And then I'll tell them, that ah, that's not worth anything. They hand me a star note. And I said, oh, no, those are just like everything else. But would you change it with me here? So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'll have to I'll have to do it the hard way. OK, no well, you 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 work on that. And in the meantime, uh, we're going to throw to our interview with Dennis Hengeveld. Um, if you haven't considered world paper money maybe maybe this will get you to start thinking about it there's a lot of rarity and artistry and maybe the the value will catch up in some cases i mean there's definitely a um, a gap there between uh the rarity and artistry and and the value so you'll hear all about it if you if you stay with us here is our interview the Coin World Podcast is fortunate today to uh, get to speak with Dennis Hengeveld of World Banknote Auctions. You know, one of the things that maybe gets overlooked, you know, Coin World as the publication and the podcast, you know, has that word coin in there. But this hobby has such an amazing uh, array of paper money out there to pursue, and especially world paper money. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Thank you for being here. Hello. I just want to set the stage uh, for the listeners because, you know, you've, uh, you know, anyone who's uh, chanced upon your website has seen the variety of world paper money. Um, Can you talk about when you got started in the hobby and how you fell into uh, an interest in and expertise in paper money. So I've been pretty much a coin collector all my life. I remember uh, my grandmother gave me an old coin uh, when I was eight years old and that kind of started it all. And for many years, I wanted to become a a coin dealer and I kind of started in that and, you know, started buying and selling and had a more than a passing interest in paper money, but you know, didn't think that was something that I wanted to become a full-time dealer in. But that all changed in, in 2015 when I was at a Baltimore show and you know, I looked everywhere and I could not find any coins that were interesting. And there was one dealer who had a, a, a stack of well paper money. And, you know, I I had dabbled in it a little bit. But I decided to, you know, spend a little bit more time than I usually would going through it. And I picked up probably 30 or 40 pieces and sold those and did very well and basically decided that this is a market that should be explored. There's not that many specialized dealers. So I saw an opportunity and that's how I kind of rolled into it. And is that um, sort of focus, is that? you know, on current issues of the world, historic issues, everything in between? What's, uh, is there a particular area that you gravitate toward? So I've, I like to say that we deal on everything and anything. One focus that I've always really enjoyed is, is notes from, say, post-World War II up to about the 1980s. That's an area that has tons of really scarce to even downright rare notes that um, are very difficult to find, uh, but that remain, you know, fairly undervalued. 
you know, there's there's notes from the 1960s and 1970s that may only show up at auction once every five or ten years. Um, so I've I've always kind of focused on that, trying to find those issues. But on the other hand, you know, we have no our auctions will have notes from the 1920s and even earlier in there in, in circulated rates or, you know, issues that came out a month ago that are brand new um, because, you know, we try to cater to basically the entire collecting market, whether they like, you know, something really obscure from the 19th century or they're trying to put together a set of new notes from Costa Rica. And how important is third-party grading and slabbing in the world paper money arena Certainly, in general, and then you can specify, you know, be more specific about, you know, your uh, approach, your market, uh, you know, the market that you're making. So that's something that has really taken off in the last 15 years, ever since you know PMG and PCDS started grading uh, world paper money or paper money in general. It's definitely more important. Um, it's you know, obviously, the world paper market. Um, they started grading them about 20 years after they started grading coins. And in some ways, it's still a little bit behind. You know, there's still a lot of old school collectors that will not touch a graded banknote or even refuse to look at it. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also a, a new segment of the market that mostly younger collectors that are coming in that really enjoy, you know, the challenge of finding high grade notes. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of like, I like to compare it to how it probably was in the early 1990s. You know, you had people that were still putting together their albums that did not want to buy any graded coins. Uh, but there's also people that are now starting to put together sets and want to focus on 67, 68, 69s. So as a company, one thing that I've always done, because we basically only sell online. Uh, you know, people can come to our office if they'd like, but as a general rule, everything is is sold online um and we've always wanted to kind of create a confidence there that people you know knew what they were buying which is why you know 99 percent or even more than that of uh, notes we offer are graded by third-party graders um which is you know i think it's really the future um you know not everybody will agree but um it, it's what i've seen so far it's brought in a lot of new people into the market and um, it's definitely something that's here to stay. What advice would you give to someone who uh, is considering uh, going down the paper money route here? Obviously, you had your experience in Baltimore that got you a little more ingrained in this. But now if somebody, if somebody comes to your website and sees the vast array of the material that's available there, what, what do you suggest? How do you suggest that they start? Well, I think the one thing you do want to do is, is remain focused. Um, you know, there's literally tens of thousands of different notes and, and nobody can collect it all. Um, you know, there is no Elias Burke or, you know, off-world paper money. So pick an interest that um, you maybe have a personal connection to. You know, a lot of people will collect notes from a country their ancestors or they themselves are from. Um, there's also people that collect topically, you know, basically like what, happened with stamps you know they might only collect notes with famous people on it or um with animals on them so that's really you know pick an interest you know really focus on that and learn a lot about it um which is going to take time because there's you know there is a lot of information out there but it's very scattered um you know there's no websites that you can find all the information you need you know you're really going to have to you know talk to people 
um, try to understand, you know, how the market has developed for that particular area and just go from there. Well, if somebody has an interest in, say, a U.S. coin type thing, there, it seems like it's a finite set. But with the situation with World Bank note auctions, it looks like you have to deal with countries that exist today and even countries that didn't exist. How much of is it a challenge for you to uh, be able to present the material that's needed to satisfy the needs of these collectors? So the, the the one problem that world paper money as a market as a whole has is the lack of supply. And this is something that I think is, is if there's one hindrance in the growth of it, that's what's going to be the problem. Um, you know, there's notes that will only come up at auction every decade or, or even less than that. Um, and the, part of the issue is that, you know, this has really grown exponentially over the last couple of decades. Um, but the supply has, has kind of stayed stagnant. Um, you know, we, we can see big old-time collections come on the market. Once those are sold, you're not going to be able to replace those notes as easily as, as you would with like a U.S. coin. And that's basically applies to any country, you know, whether they're existing or just still issuing, um, you know, except for new modern issues from, say, the 1990s on. Uh, and even there, there's some exceptions. But um, if you're looking for, name something, um, Western Samoa, five pound 1961, you might only have one opportunity every decade. And, you know, right now there may be three or four collectors interested in that note. Um, add a couple more and you'll see the issue. There's just not enough material out there. Is is that a function of, you know, paper being fragile versus coins being metal? Um, I mean, were these just not saved because there's no, you know, quote unquote, intrinsic value like, a you know, a silver coin? you know, 50 years ago or, well, even longer than that now. <laughs> but, you know, why are notes so scarce and rare? So, you know, as a general rule, I mean, even in the U.S., notes are going to have a higher face value. Um, so for somebody to put aside a, a five-pound note in Scotland or a 20-pound note in Scotland in the 1940s, that required a considerable investment. And, you know, there were no real collectors at the time. Um, they got spent, they got turned into the bank, and they got destroyed. So for such a note to survive, you'll be looking at, you know, basically it ended up in a book. It ended up in a drawer somewhere um, and, and by sheer happenstance. And then, you know, by nature, a coin is going to take 10, 20 years to get down to a, a VF or an XF. Um, if you take a brand new note, just because how the grading works, um, I can turn an uncirculated note into a VF in about 3.2 seconds and probably quicker than that. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, that's a major thing about supply and, and quality. It's, it's difficult for such a note to survive. You, you mentioned grading, and I, I'm glad you did again. You circled back to that because to me, that's one thing that I think is I have a hard time wrapping my head around how to grade paper money. I mean, you know, we see, uh, you know, Amos uh, publishes uh, the making the grade, which shows you how to grade uh, U.S. coins, and it's. I mean, it, anybody looking at that can can pick it up and and figure it out. But I think there there are particular nuances with uh, paper money that make it uh, that much harder, right? It, yes, I, I agree. So um, 
I mean, it, it's one of those things that with experience, you can learn. You know, you can, uh, a lot of people will say, oh, you can count the faults. And, and this, but one thing that to keep in mind when it comes to currency grading is that I appeal is extremely important. You know, uh, just because a node is only two faults, that doesn't make it uh, an AU or an XF. It, you know, it depends on other factors. So you, you can definitely learn. But it, it takes looking at a lot of notes and, and, you know, and these standards grade as well. This is something that, that causes a lot of disagreements, especially between people that have been collecting since the 1960s uh, and collectors that just came into the market because the standards are slightly different. Uh, just like EAC grading is, is different than PCGS grading for early copper. And that's just one of those things that, that you know, that's always going to be a discussion and it complicates matters, you know, for sure. You mentioned the shifting standards. Uh, talk about how collectors need to be aware of different firms in operation at different times under different names. You know, what is market accepted today and how can collectors be, you know, arm themselves uh, against buying something that's been overgraded or, you know, we, you know, we know of these uh, quote unquote grading firms that, uh, operate in the coin space and put their own name on it and put a high grade on it. And, I, you know, I know that there's there's some pitfalls similar to that or analogous to that in paper money, right? Yeah, there is. And I, I don't want to get into the, the nuances and the complications of the whole world paper money grading sagas. Uh, but what I can tell you is that as a company, you know, World Banknote Auctions will only offer Notes graded by either PMG, uh, PCGS banknote grading, or what used to be known as PCGS currency. Okay. Um, we do not offer any any notes offered by anybody else, uh, and there's multiple reasons for that. Um, you know, we there's two different grading companies that use different standards, um, and their standards are, are very strict and they're very good. And I like the people that run it, uh, but. If we're going to put notes in that auction, you know, we would have to explain that, you know, this 68 uh, may not be a 68 at the other grading company just because it's a different standard. Um, yeah, well, so and in that, in that situation, would you uh, remove it from the older or, you know, questionable slab and have it have it slabbed by one of the services that you, you do have trust in? Yes, that's what we do. Okay. And, it's, okay. and and we explain it to the customer, you know, this is this is the situation. And it's it's all about, you know, like going back to the fact that we are online only. You know, we want to create that that confidence for the customer. You know, we want to make sure that they have uh, what they need. Um, you know, is there the occasional overgraded notes? Of course. You know, no matter the holder, there's always going to be notes or coins that are, you know, might grade differently on a different day. Um, but that's just as a, as a company, we made that decision, and, and for now, we're sticking to that. As you mentioned, you're online only, but it seems like this is the perfect time to be online and, and focus a lot on the online side of things. But uh, when you're online, you have to make sure that you have concise imagery and accurate descriptions. How difficult is it to maintain an online presence in today's paper money markets? It's difficult in the sense that you want to make sure you don't sell nonsense. You know, you want to make sure that the descriptions are accurate, that we don't say, oh, there's only three examples known of this note, and somebody spends two minutes researching and turns up five. 
um, you know, that that's what's very important. Um, that's that's what something we have focused on. Uh, you know, we do have descriptions for most of our notes. Um, a lot of them I write myself. Um, and it's, you know, there's there to provide insight, but obviously the, the image is what tells most of the story. And with the ever-changing environment that is, and uh, you maintain a website that you can uh, get the customers to and see your online auctions and that type of thing, how much of a challenge is it to stay on top of it or refresh it? Because it's, it's a relatively young site. So is it coming up for any kind of refresh or anything? So we are launching a different landing page on the on the main site. Um, hopefully in the next week or two, which means it'll probably take another month. <laughs> uh, which is going to, you know, provide a little bit more information on the company. Uh, it will be have a place where people can download consignment forms and read more about consigning, um, as well about the company itself. Um, and the one thing that I'm very excited about is that there's going to be um, a blog, which will allow me to, you know, tell a little bit more about specific notes or specific upcoming auctions, uh, which I think will be very interesting. Which I believe is one of the first such blogs. Um, on the internet uh, dedicated solely to world paper money. Is there a particular area of world paper money that is sort of overlooked or undervalued or maybe, you know, needs to have a spotlight shined on it? And, and what draws you to that little area or areas, those areas? Well, there's a, there's a lot of areas that I think are undervalued that if, if a couple more collectors come in, um, that could totally shift the market. Um, the one area that I really like is is particularly notes um, issued in foreign countries or what many would consider a foreign country during U.S. Uh, administration. So, for example, Puerto Rico, um, they issued notes as a Spanish colony, uh, but they also issued notes um, in the early 20th century right after the U.S. took over. And those notes are listed under Puerto Rico in the World Paper Money Catalog. But in, in my opinion, uh, they are really part of a, a U.S. collection. Um, you know, they have an authorization in Washington, D.C. on them. Uh, they were printed in the United States um, basically in the style of the old large style notes. U.S. paper money collectors will be familiar with nationals from Puerto Rico, which are extremely difficult, you know, very rarely come up for sale. But then there's this, this several different series of um, notes in dollars that were issued around the same time that I think are very interesting. And the same thing applies to um, U.S. Philippines, which it's more popular. There's some very dedicated collectors for U.S. Philippines, uh, but these are notes that have George Washington on them. Yet, you know, a lot of U.S. collectors will be unfamiliar with them simply because they're not in the U.S. catalogs. Now, my concern uh, is that sometimes I get a little too narrow in my thoughts here, and I might be thinking that all your customers are U.S.-based. Is that true, or are you, do you really have global outreach available for your auctions and for your, for your website? So the last time I counted, and I didn't really count it, it was more a, a, a small sampling, uh, about 60% of our customers are overseas, and about 40% are so within the U.S., and that's fairly typical, you know, um, a lot of countries like India, China, they, um, you know, have a lot of new collectors there. And these are the people that, you know, they're able to find our auctions and they see notes that 
from their history uh, and they like to buy them. And that's, you know, a lot of our market is, is overseas. And it is, uh, like you say, they're looking for pieces of their heritage or are they also branching out into some of these topical areas or, you know, um, you know, one of the other ways that you can collect is, or is it, is it pretty specific to, uh, just getting their items back to the home country? What I have seen, uh, you know, initially they'll focus on their own items, but then there's always a group of people that expand. Um, so, you know, we ship a lot of European notes, for example, to China. We ship a lot of, um, African notes to countries like Malaysia and India. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of overlap there too. Um, you know, a lot of these countries, you know, after you complete a collection or, or get complete, you know, you, you're stuck with the $50,000, $100,000 notes. Well, you know, a collector is always going to collect. And so that's when they branch out. And um, one country we're seeing that now has been a very strong market is Colombia. And I was just looking at some of our Colombian customers, and they are now slowly buying Central America, South America as a whole. And, you know, I expect them to branch out further to European, African, Asian banknotes, you know, within the next couple of years. Interesting. Now, uh, when we see what I call the the mania surrounding million dollar coins, does uh, the paper money market get residual benefits when coins get headlines? Does paper money auctions attract more interest when that happens? I have not seen that, unfortunately. And I think that's because, you know, a lot of people still consider it separately. Uh, Now, there's a lot of collectors that collect both coins and paper money. But usually at that point, you know, they've made up their mind. In in my experience, the more serious collectors will collect one or the other, you know, and I would love to see more overlap. uh, But at this point, you know, we're not really seeing that that much with, with some exceptions, of course. I, I wonder if there's not more overlap or a greater overlap of collectors of stamps and collectors of paper money because, you know, stamps are, in a small sense, tiny banknotes. You know, they're these print, except for the more modern stuff, of course, but, you know, these engraved pieces with the denomination that had a fiscal use and, you know, how many of those, I mean, I know stamps were saved to a much larger degree, but you know, you, you weren't saving $5, $10 stamps, like, you know, three cent stamps. Do you find that um, at play at all? Is, is there a philatelic connection? I would have thought so, um, which is why I went to a couple of stamp shows and okay. I, I asked around and pretty much all the dealers told me I rarely ever see paper money. Hmm. And for some reason, there is just no overlap. Um, you know, it's interesting you bring up the uh, the stamp market because, you know, yes, they are similar to an extent. Um, but if we compare prices paid for, um, you know, really rare stamps and really rare paper money, the paper money is, is just a fraction, which I think, exp- you know, is a further um, evidence of how undervalued some of this material is. Uh, you know, people... The rarer stamps, they'll go for $100,000, uh, but they'll be 20 known. While, you know, we've got notes in some of our auctions that, you know, they may have only been three or four known, um, and you can buy it for less than $10,000. Hmm. That's that's um, interesting. I know, you know, the, the 
ultra rarities in stamps can be million dollars and all that. Um, are there, in my, I guess, very little knowledge, it seems to me that I can only think of maybe one note or a handful of notes, uh, world paper money, not talking U.S. here, that have ever sold for a million dollars U.S. or more. Is that the next barrier? Am, am I right in that? I mean, I think the Canada, there's a Canada $500 note or something from 1911. What's the, the highest um, sold world paper money? And, and what's going to be the ones, the, the notes that break down those barriers and make the headlines next? I, on the top of my head, I cannot answer which one sold the most. It very well could have been a Canadian note. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, ca- I'm catching you off guard here, but it just you occurred are, to me. You you know, we're, 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 we're talking about these, you know, rarity. And and I know that, you know, it's like I've been in CoinRoll now basically 17, 18 years. I can't remember the headlines about paper money of a million dollars other than, you know, in the U.S. sense, the watermelon notes. And, you know, and then, like I say this, I think the Canadian $500 or something. Um, so I, I just wonder, to me, that means there's room to grow as the rarity becomes appreciated, as the notes become better known. I'm just wondering what those notes might be. So, Well, there's, there's going to be, you know, it, it would obviously be a classic note, um, a high value uh, or something totally new but you know i can give a perfect example last week at, at an auction in the uk a note turned up um it's in hong kong 1865 yep. uh totally unknown nobody's ever seen that note in 160 years it showed up in england somewhere it's the earliest issued hong kong note ever by several years it brought about two hundred thousand dollars yeah. Now, if that was a, a U.S. note or a U.S. coin, you know, we would be talking millions. And mm-hmm. Ho- Hong Kong is not a weak market. Hong Kong is, is very strong. Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody who, who doubts that should look at where some of the international uh, auction houses hold auctions. I mean, they have Hong Kong auctions because there's collector demand. So um, that, that's a perfect example of, of seeing that story in the news recently. <laughs> Yes, and it's you know it's it's such a fantastic note. Um, you know it it had the early date. I mean, we're talking about a, a note issued you know basically less than two decades after Hong Kong was founded, and and that's what I like about world paper money. You know, you can hold the note, you can look up images. You know, what did Hong Kong look like back in eighteen sixties, and it will make you realize that you know for that note to survive in any shape or form, I mean, it, it's nothing less than a miracle. And what you talked about earlier on about the affordability that got you into this, but I would think, as you just mentioned, this Hong Kong note and talk about holding it in your hand and taking a look at it here, because the coin is such a small uh, platform that a note uh, with a bigger canvas offers more opportunities for time spent looking, so to speak, because a lot of these times notes that have greater portraits on them hold more interest in my opinion. So is visual appeal an important factor in selling a note? Yes, no, most definitely. You know, we've seen that, you know, one one very popular area is Africa from basically 1920s to 1960s or even 1970s. You know, French printed, French Africa, the great big notes, very colorful. They have local scenes on them. You know, those Beautiful. are among the, yes, and they're among the most popular issues out there. 
you know, as you mentioned Africa, I think there's so much upside, but the path that the world has to take to get there, there's so much upside numismatically with coins and notes from Africa because there's so many um, places that, you know, there, there was uh, at war, there was colonial administration. So there's, you know, there should be buyers, you know, German Africa and, you know, Belgium, the, the nations that were settled by France and Belgium and all these others, you know, there's connections to Europe, uh, but there's, there's a lot of scarcity. There's great design, certainly in the banknotes. Some of the coins are, are neat. There just isn't the, class of collectors for those like there is, you know, certainly in the, for the U S or, or British or whatever. Um, would you, would you agree or how, how has that bo- been borne out by sales results in, in your auctions? Well, I can definitely agree with it. Um, it, it kind of depends on the, on the issue, uh, and the country, you know, one area that is, has been very good for decades is this Belgian Congo. You know, there's a lot of different cities you could collect, but the collectors for that are mostly in Belgium and, and you know, one or two in the United States. I don't know if you're referring to, to a, an actual market in Africa, because unfortunately that's, that's at this point pretty much non-existent uh, with a few exceptions. I think we have two or three customers in, Af- in the entire continent of Africa, uh, yeah. and that's it, and that's it. And that's what I'm saying, you know, there's... Um... There's such a large population. There's such a great history there. You know, if some of these things, these other forces changed, I could see the notes and coins of Africa, you know, rising and, you know, in value quite a bit if, you know, it, they're just a little uh, tweak to things. So um, th- anyway, that's just my sort of like spitballing basic observation that you know is is worth every bit that it cost you <laughs> well and i think that uh, it's in the eye of the beholders we mentioned and i just want to find out dennis how often are the auctions held at uh, worldbanknoteauctions.com so as a general rule every three weeks is what we call our live sales um, they take place on thursdays at 10 a.m uh pacific with those are basically the sales with all the highlights. Uh, they'll offer live bidding, what we call live bidding, to both our website and the mobile apps. We started on a two-week schedule, uh, but we wanted to give the notes a little bit more exposure. So right now we're at a three-week schedule, and then you know if there's a holiday in between, we sometimes switch it to four weeks. Um, and then in addition to that, we have what we call our select sales, uh, which are generally more affordable notes that do not offer live bidding. They end at a specific time. Um, and those are held right now about once a month on Sunday. So it would behoove someone interested to check fairly often on your website. Yeah. You know, a new sale get listed at least every three weeks and, and often, you know, usually more often than that. You know, we have a lot of things in the pipeline, so to say. Um, and one thing that I'm very excited about is we picked up a um, specialized Jordan collection that's been put together for probably at least three decades. And that's going to be uh, a special sale. Um, and we're actually printing catalogs for that. You know, I say we're online only, but this is one kind of little experiment we're doing oh, fun. Uh, where we are printing catalogs and you know, we are sending those out to some of our customers and, and people will be able to view the printed catalog and kind of keep it because, you know, the collection is basically, you know, 95% complete. Um, 
there's there's one highlight I just I need to mention is is a specimen book uh, printed by Thomas De La Rue in England in 1955. Um, that is probably the only such book still in existence uh, that was basically created as a as a sample or as a presentation piece. And I have not been able to find any other sales results of such a booklet in the past at least 30 years. Awesome. Awesome. The, and the uh, bibliophile in me is excited to, to hear about the catalog. So uh, thank you so much for taking all this time today to explore the world of uh, world paper money and what that market looks like and, and how you're serving it. Uh, this has been a, a delight. Sir Fing, thanks for having me. That was our interview with Dennis Hengeveld of WorldBanknoteAuctions.com. And uh, hope that maybe you are inspired to pursue world paper money if you had not uh, previously considered it as a topic. Yeah, it's interesting that he uh, makes some points there, especially on the Puerto Rico and Philippines. I, you know, really think that that's that's an interesting point. You know, and I was at a show and picked up some world currency because it was reasonable. And it wasn't graded, obviously. It was just something to have. And then I'm thumbing through and I come across a note from Belarus with a squirrel on it. And that was game over right there. I had to have that. You know, as a quirky collector, I, you know, I get these oddball things. And so to come across currency with a squirrel on it was, was enough for me. So just imagine if I delve into the world of world currency, what it's going to be like. Now you just need to find uh, some paper money with Bullwinkle and Natasha on it. Yeah. Well, it's, I, it's I, worth the quest. It's worth the quest. I say that because, you know, Belarus is from Russia. And of course, that was, you know, the <laughs> Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know. Um, I already have of, a moose uh, coin from Canada. So, I mean, uh, I've got uh, the Bullwinkle thing down. Okay, you you you've got the uh, that was a riff on on the uh, the Soviets, but um, that that whole yeah. series is fun. There's a bison out there on the Belarusian notes. There's and all of all of these should retail in the twenty five cent to a dollar range. Um, mm-hmm. You know from that that series from Belarus. It's they're smaller notes. They have animals. The you know it's just fun. I I think there there may even be a, a moose on one of those notes, but uh, or caribou or something. But anyway, yeah, it, it's um it's good that you've you've started to feed your interest in world paper money. Uh, I certainly do when I have the chance, and we certainly hope that you on the other end are as well. And, uh, you know, we thank you for being here every week. We couldn't do this without AmosAdvantage.com. We're, and we, we couldn't do it without you. We wouldn't want to do it without you because, uh, you know, otherwise we're just talking to ourselves. And who, who wants to listen to that? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. But we're, we're definitely glad. And, you know, I don't mean to trivialize uh, what Dennis was talking about because if you're interested in it, and uh, he has some great examples of many, many, many countries and uh, high-quality notes right there, certainly uh, worthy of your collection. But I'm not there at that level yet. If you are, you need to check out worldbanknoteauctions.com, worldbanknoteauctions.com, so that you can find out what's going on. We're going to give you the time to do that because we'll be back with you in about seven days or so. But in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.
Would you like to sponsor the Coin World podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at b h e r t e l at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World podcast.